Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is how to be a congregation, and possibly before the end, how to choose a congregation, since none of us can help but being church consumers now, which is a sad thing, and we'll probably talk about that too. Anyway, to begin this, I would like to propose that... A congregation is, if not impossible, such a wildly implausible thing that the sheer fact of its existence, of the existence of so many, uh, that they have existed over so much time and continue to survive, and in some cases even to flourish, is a miracle to exceed even the feeding of the 5,000 or the raising of Lazarus. I mean, think about it. We're bringing together a huge, disparate group of people. There are basically no requirements to get in. I mean, you know, there there might be some distinction between the baptized and the unbaptized. There used to be a bigger one about who could watch the communion liturgy. Nowadays, not so much. Um, almost no requirements for membership beyond baptism. Um, you govern together, you manage money together, you have to choose music that everybody likes to sing. There are huge areas of ethical and theological dispute. I mean, if someone were to lay out this idea now, it would be laughed off the stage as a completely uh, useless, uh, fruitless, and quixotic undertaking. And yet, the world is fuller of Christian congregations than ever before. So surely this is an important uh, topic and an area of God's major concern and interest. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, Dad, I was uh, recently eavesdropping on some other intellectuals in their conversations, and um, one that I ad- admire—I'm not going to—I'm not going to reveal to you who my other podcast um, favorites are—but one of them, who I otherwise admire, was making some offhanded remark uh, as a scientist that uh, how unuseful it was, though he could appreciate the role of religion in people's lives, for us to center all of our energies on texts that are thousands of years old were probably helpful back then, but can't possibly address the pressing questions of today. And I realized as this conversation unfolded that he had the idea that these scriptures just exist in a floating vacuum and are just dropped like a parachute over the world today. And that suddenly we're supposed to look into Nehemiah and figure out what to do about Google's manipulative (laughs) algorithms. (laughs) And right. this is this is particularly hilarious, but it is representative, I find, even of intellectuals in America who are sympathetic to religion or to Christianity or Judaism. There are two things they don't see. One is that there is a long-stretching theological tradition of nonstop commentary on these scripture texts from the beginning. There is no time at which the present-day community hasn't been wrestling with these old scriptures and trying to figure out what the interface is. So it's not like we're coming at it from nothing. But secondly, and I think this maybe is the more interesting thing as I reflect on it, is that theologians, by and large, are involved in congregations. It is an intellectual discipline that always has a relatedness to a living community of people locally gathered, but historically and globally connected to the entire church. I can't really think of any other discipline that is so deeply embedded in community life the way theology is, and I think that makes all the difference. But that also means that I think as theologians, we realize the importance of the congregation in even what we do as an intellectual. Discipline. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Sarah. I think that's that's extremely important what you're saying there. Uh, on the other hand, however, I think there's a great deal of confusion about what a congregation is anymore. That correlates with the observation we've made on our podcast over these couple of years that in America, Christianity is a mile wide and an inch deep. It's a very sh- very shallow Christianity. And e- sometimes the most shallow thinking about Christianity occurs in church members who think they know it all already. I fault a lot of this to the crisis of confidence that has gradually built in the course of the last two centuries, and including, the, we talked about last week, about how to be a pastor— the crisis of confidence in pastoral ministry in which neglect of the hard work of teaching uh, 
has led to a vacuum in knowledge and understanding regarding what a congregation is. Yeah, I think that that's very true. So I think that's what we should just dive right into is is a reforming the picture of what a congregation is, what it's for, what it should do, what it shouldn't do. Um, and, you know, as, as we go along, we'll comment, too, on on the pastor's role in that, though, as you know, we covered that pretty thoroughly last time. Right. Yeah. So let's just begin with the basic uh, biblical etymology of our term congregation which is almost literally the same etymology as the Greek word uh, synagogue, uh, the coming together synagogue, or ekklesia, the Greek word uh, which etymologically means to be called out as you're summoned to an assembly. Uh, So assembly, congregation, synagogue, congregating, getting together, All of these are the root ideas of what a congregation is. And of course, if you think of it that way, you can be congregated or assembled or synagogued around any number of different uh, summons or proclamations or charismas or callings. And I think in order to get clear on what a Christian congregation is, we've got to be explicit clear and explicit about who and what summons this improbable gathering of people together and places them into fellowship. So what do you think that is? Well, I'm guessing this works like a children's sermon in church so that the answer must be Jesus. It couldn't possibly be anything else. (laughs) Yeah, I love that old joke about the children's sermon. The pastor says, uh, now what lives in the woods and runs on the ground and climbs in the trees and has a big bushy tail and loves to eat nuts? And little Johnny pipes up, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> I love that one too. <laughs> okay, so we'll be a little, try to be a little bit uh, more adult than Q&A on what is a congregation here. But I think clarity on what is a congregation is what clarion call, what summons, what word from God creates and sustains this improbable fellowship uh, through time? And our shorthand answer to that is the gospel. And our more precise answer to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because, of course, there are many gospels and pseudo-gospels afoot in the world. But we're talking specifically about the gospel of Jesus, who proclaimed the kingdom of God and consequently was crucified, but on the third day vindicated by God and appointed Lord in present in the improbable fellowship of the congregation, but in prospect of his universal reign as the saving Lord of all creation. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting and important to point out, um, which I, a way that I don't think is obvious anymore, that you can, as an individual, have a direct relationship to the story, to Christ, to the scriptures that tell about all these things, and in the process miss that the way the story even got to you and the way it is told within the scripture always always assumes that to hear this word about Jesus and to believe it is to be embedded into a community, to be called out of wherever you are and to belong to a grouping. If you reread the New Testament with an eye to this, you realize that there there is no solo Christian. That's That should be like, you know, a a round triangle, a contradiction in terms. By definition, if you are in fellowship with Christ, you are also in fellowship with all the other people who are in fellowship with Christ and have a new kind of relationship to them. And I would add in a public way too. So Christ alone is never alone. Christ alone is always found in the fellowship of his people. It is not a, a lonely fellowship that hears the word of Christ alone as Savior. And I think this is really important. Martin Luther in the Catechism, when he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, says that the Holy Spirit leads us to the church and sits us down in it so that there the Holy Spirit can proclaim the word of God to us and create faith. So there's no idea that somehow the um, word of God, the gospel, grabs you on your lonesome. And then you seek out a like-minded fellowship. 
for Luther, the process is exactly the opposite. Wherever you may be in life, somehow God finds you as an individual and brings you into this special holy community and there proclaims the gospel to you, creates faith, and yokes you, binds you uh, to the beloved community that is existing in the life of the congregation. So I think we can say that the congregation is the embodied fellowship in the gospel. Uh, it's, in fact, for Paul, it is the earthly body of the risen Lord. It's the primary locus in the world of the work of the gospel. Christianity is congregational life. I think we can say something that strong. And getting clear about this, uh, I think, is extremely important today because for a lot of voices, even within theology, the primacy of congregational life is in danger of being overlooked. And uh, people are actually talking about and experimenting with what they consider to be new forms of Christianity that leave congregational life behind. I think this is a very uh, troubling development. What forms in particular do you have in mind? These aren't like new experiments in congregational life, but new experiments in none or anti or a congregational life? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of people for whom social media, uh, ant uh, anticipated by radio and television ministries, has turned Christianity into a kind of a club that you can tune in and tune out of as needed in your, uh, to, uh, to uh, help you with your personal needs or something like this. And I think that... Uh, even the fellowships that are strong and continuing sometimes feel uh, envy uh, at the success of these alternative forms and want to mimic them or imitate them or somehow jazz things up with these uh, tools in order to enliven their own experience. And all this to me ref reflects a great confusion about Christianity as congregational life. You know, Dad, I think it reflects profound confusion about what it means to be a human being. We've seen <laughs> so much of, well, I mean, just think yeah. about the skyrocketing rise of depression, anxiety disorders, all other kinds of psychological and so social disorders of all kinds that seem to track very closely with the rise of internet, but especially smartphone use, social media's constant envy, provocations, and so forth. I, I just heard something that said Americans, not just because of the pandemic, but are reporting greater rates of loneliness than, than ever, and yet invest more, uh, more energy than ever in cultivating their online image and, you know, trying to date through apps. I mean, you know, I'm not single. I haven't been for a long time, so I don't know what it's like for you guys. It sounds pretty awful to me, but uh, I just want to say, like, there's what's happening in the in congregations being detached from fellowship is part of a massive cultural detachment from the real awkwardness of in-person embodied, complex emotions, mutually governed life together. I mean, right. that's really hard. And it's so hard that people have, I think, without even realizing it, fallen into the addiction of a fake version of everything. And now they don't have the skills to exit and enter real life again and are just increasingly trapped, lonely. And it's a very self-reinforcing cycle. Yeah, I, I think we mentioned this in an earlier podcast, but I would refer our listeners to the amazing book by Johann Hari, Lost Connections. And now Hari is himself an atheist, and he, uh, but he understands how religion and congregational life are one of those connections that have been lost, and he acknowledges that. Uh, but it's a very, uh, I wish all pastors who are dealing with these issues would read Johann Hari's Lost Connections. Uh, and I think that as a college professor for the last 20 years here in the uh, United States, I've witnessed in dismay uh, how so many young people have lost all sense of genuine connection and the kinds of connections that they find, the substitute forms of, for connection are psychologically so uh, depressing for them 
and isolating and so forth and so on. So, you know, a lot of times you hear pastors say it's not about believing, it's about belonging. I've heard that, especially in liberal mainline churches, uh, from those pastors who don't like theology, don't want to work at theology, don't want to think theologically, are just expert glad-handers and backslappers, and just think if they can be great cheerleaders, they can, they can create a sense of community. Because it's not about believing, it's belonging. Yeah, they don't want to make any claim that could possibly make anyone feel unwelcome for any reason whatsoever. Right. Of course, that's all self-defeating because finally you have to have some ideology, some belief system by which you, uh, you, you value, you lift up and, and make preeminent the value of belonging. Now, I don't dispute this. Uh, as a theologian who's titled his made a, a leitmotif out of, out of the theme of beloved community. I think the theme of belonging is really important. But for Christianity and congregational life, we have to say we belong to Jesus Christ, as you said earlier. He is our Lord and we are his people. Uh, and that is the primary belonging. I, have, I am not my own. I've been bought with the price a price, right, and and so forth. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. It's not my community, your community. It's the community of Jesus Christ, and so it's a matter of belonging to Jesus Christ, and identifying, specifying, spelling out, inculcating, teaching, communicating who Jesus Christ is and why the congregation exists to embody this risen Lord in the present day world is fundamental to what a congregation is. Yeah. And, you know, as you as you said, there is always going to be some centralized belief system. So if that isn't the center of the congregation, you can be certain that in time, if not already, something else will be. It will rear its ugly head. It will demand its own worship and its own obedience. And you are going to have a real mess on your hands. Uh, But the fact is, you know, the gospel is we know does not attract everybody for various reasons throughout their life and maybe forever. So there's there's nothing wrong per se. There's nothing unwelcoming per se about simply being honest about who you are. You know, we are a group of people who recognize Jesus as Lord and seek to conform our lives to him. That's what we do. As a human being, we're happy to get to know you. But if you want to be part of the congregation in any meaningful sense, I mean, for, for the thing simply to be what it is, you know, like if a math class club, you know, started doing only um, baking cookies, it wouldn't be a math club anymore. I mean, there's nothing (laughs) wrong with baking cookies, but it just wouldn't be what it is. And, you know, it's the same for a congregation. We have so many opportunities to interact with people. Uh, There's nothing wrong with doing that. But in a congregation, it exists to be this, this one particular thing, the community around Christ. Absolutely. And as a Christian theologian, Sarah, I pride myself in all the uh, relationships I have with non-Christians, all sorts of interesting people, atheists, agnostics, nominal Christians of various uh, backgrounds and so forth, and people of other faiths, especially Jews and Muslims in America today. I'm very happy to have all these diverse relationships. And I, I would be happy if they would come to the church and see what's going on and pay attention and listen to it and experience it without any expectation that they would be forced to participate beyond being an observer. Uh, I think that would be a kind of subtle coercion if I said, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, just come up to the communion rail and have a little taste of grace. I mean, that, that, that I find that to be so disrespectful and so dishonest uh, not to recognize. Uh, you know, I saw a meme today that in heaven there will be no others. And I totally disagree with that. I mean, the popular language now is that we're othering others. That's a way of disrespecting them, disowning them. But I think, on the contrary, that the only way to the beloved community is by acknowledging otherness and finding the the great spiritual resource who is the Holy Spirit that allows us to love others qua others, as others, not as the same as myself. 
And so I think congregations have not only an internal task to love one another, as I have loved you, but to manifest this love to all those outsiders uh, that it will meet in its uh, daily life in the neighborhood. Yeah, you know, to refer back to your comments on uh, social media versions of Christianity, I mean, I think there, if we can recognize the opportunity to share the gospel outside of the congregational life or the church building, you know, to just make the word, the news available, that is uh, that is a, a hugely important task. But I think the problem is when it doesn't also proclaim along with Christ that if this is saying anything to you folks, go find a church and get involved and learn right. to know the others who are there. Um, that That is the missing second half of, of, of what's being communicated. So in, in light of this, let's... Um, Let's talk a little bit about um, defining, uh, again, in a, a triage way, like we did with the pastor's job last time, is defining in a triage way the congregational tasks. And I think from there we need to transition into uh, troubleshooting or the many pitfalls of the congregation. I feel like I've already heard the objecting voices of our listeners saying, but, 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 but wait, if you knew what was going on in the congregation that I used to belong to. And like, yes, we know, we know, we've been there. So, uh, but but let's get the, uh, the, uh, the primary positive assertion about what a congregation is first before we go into dealing with these difficult issues. Do you want to lead the way? Yes, I, I, and I want to say something here that's very much uh, coming from Martin Luther's distinction between Latin terms vita passiva and vita activa, the passive life and the active life, or perhaps a more uh, attractive word than passive would be contemplative. When one is in a state of or receptive, receptive. When one is in such a state, uh, one is open and hearing and perceiving with all one's faculties something that is being gifted, given to you. And I think the fundamental task of the congregation is first of all this passive one, this receptive one, this contemplative one, to hear the word of God and to let it do its work on heart and soul and on relationships with others in the congregation, to hear that gospel word of God and let it do its work where and when the Holy Spirit pleases, as the Augsburg Confession says. I think that this is something that is, should be taught in every sermon by the pastor that your task in listening to this sermon is to open your heart and mind prayerfully in the expectation that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead uh, is going to deliver you a promise for a future that is beyond all your other human possibilities. And in the light of that liberating gift, you are going to be set free to live in the conviction of our faith that Jesus lives. Just think about that deeply. How would your life be different if every day you lived believing that Jesus truly had conquered death, death was behind him, and that his future will be your future? So that would be, for me, the first task of a congregation, that it wants to hear and receive the gospel word of God. Now, practically, that means a fundamental task of the congregation is to support the pastoral ministry of word and sacrament. It's almost, for me, a sine qua non. There can be no congregational life without an official ministry of word and sacrament by which a consecrated individual is going to be the one pastoring as a shepherd shepherds a flock of sheep, pastoring a community of Christ's people. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. I think it's profoundly un-American to say that you should go somewhere and simply receive and not be a busybody or an activist, but that probably is a, a salutary um, countercultural move there. And I think it's important just to qualify that that being passive or receptive or contemplative in the sense doesn't mean uh, being a tool of a pastor, especially a manipulative or unfaithful one. It doesn't mean that you can't argue or or dispute. We'll, we'll get into those things too. But that, that the 
core work of a congregation is to gather so that the word of God can be spoken and distributed and shared and seep in and like leaven transform every every lump that it encounters there. And it's only out of that that the active life um, then springs because it has actually been nourished and fed and is ready to undertake um, active tasks. Absolutely. And that's why Luther once said, uh, in church, we hear God's word and we speak back to God in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. We hear, we receive, and we respond actively in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. And that's what worshiping God means. When you pray, when you praise, when you petition, you are acknowledging God as God. And that is the fundamental act of worship itself, to acknowledge God as God. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. That doxology that concludes the Lord's Prayer is the essence of worship. And so as we hear God's word by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit also lifts us up in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving to acknowledge God as God. That's what worship is, whether it's in the form of hymns or prayers or the liturgy or so forth, the Eucharistic uh, self-giving, the offertory, and so forth and so on. Yeah, I think there's a kind of subtle confusion there because worship, as I feel like has become a more popular word in recent decades, it seems to really put the emphasis on our activity and offering toward God that, you know, the reason you go to church is to do your job, do your duty by God. And I know a lot of um, people outside the church are kind of repulsed by the idea. Again, they think of a like a fragile, narcissistic God that needs to be continually told how wonderful he is. There's a pretty funny um, Monty Python sketch though with them saying, oh Lord, thou art so unbelievably huge. But I think it is really important to get this right, that the reason you worship, the reason you can uh, ascribe to God what is God's is because God has called you first to receive what he has to offer. And it's in recognition of what he has done that worship becomes possible. Thanksgiving becomes possible. Praise becomes possible. So even in the actual congregational life together of worship, the same pattern that we emphasize in the doctrine of justification is present, which is first God acts and gives to you the the supplicant, the sinner, the weak, the mortal, uh, all of his gifts. And then in return, you are able to to respond to him. Yes. And I think that just like in any relationship, God's giving does not depend upon our responding, but it certainly desires our responding. And I think that there is therefore delight in genuine worship, that it is our a joy and a duty joy and 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 uh, I'm trying to think of the old language of the is, is right meet right and salutary that we should at all times and in all places offer you worship and thanks O Lord it's at the beginning of the proper preface you know there should be delight in that being enabled by the ministry of the Spirit who has opened our hearts to receive the gifts of God and the gospel and now is uniting us with Christ so that we in Christ offer ourselves heart and soul back to the Lord. Yeah, you know, I, I have to say, you know, we've talked before about how we dislike how the word grace is used. And, the, you know, I've heard people say, meaning to uplift the grace of God, things like God loves you totally unconditionally, no strings attached, or uh, Jesus gives all of himself without any regard to your return or your response. And, you know, in a a technical sense, that is true. None of it depends ultimately on our response. However, I would say that God's goal, the goal of Jesus, is not simply to give and have it be done with that, but his goal is to entice us and entangle us and draw us into his life and not leave us unchanged just with the mere fact of our redemption out there, but no otherwise uh, response or change on our side. That is God's goal in all of this. He is not a neutral party. You know, and you can, I've always, always liked to point this out that the expression justification of the ungodly is found in the letter to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, right in the middle of things, Romans 5 uh, and other places. Uh, but Romans is also bookmarked, bo- bookended, front and back by the, express, by the phrase, the obedience of faith. 
And Paul says that his apostleship is uh, directed to the Gentiles to bring about the obedience of faith. And so, yes, at the center of God's outreach is the justification of the ungodly. But the goal of that justification is to bring about among the Gentiles the obedience of faith, this loving, delightful... uh, It's not like we have to worship a narcissistic God. We get to worship the God who justifies the ungodly, and that's part and parcel of our liberation uh, from the bondage to this uh, godless and, and, and perverse world that we're in at times. Well, that presumes we have an effective uh, preacher of the gospel who is actually telling us what God is really like and not allowing us to continue to operate under delusions about a threatening or narcissistic or uninvolved deistic God. And uh, that that's part of the challenge. So why don't we move on now to some snares and pitfalls of congregational life, because I'm afraid that is the um, one of the more dominating aspects. Um, I, we refer listeners back, we did an episode last year on, uh, I think we called it the uh, the worst thing in the best words, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that kind of talked about church on a, a, a broader scale, more ecclesiology. But let's get specifically, Dad, into congregational life here. And I'll open with this. You've, you've talked about the beloved community, your leitmotif, and also uh, uh, you quoted uh, Luther talking about the the holy little flock of saints who gather in the congregation. And I think a lot of people's uh, first um, profound gut-level rebuttal is, look, my community is not full of holy people, and we certainly do not love one another, so what are you talking about? <laughs> so let's... Let's start with congregations that do not experience their life together as one of love and who are coping with a lot of unholiness. Uh, You're absolutely right to put your finger on this as a real problem in contemporary American church life. Well, probably all, Dad, let's be honest. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, like that old joke that Robert Jensen used to tell from the 19th century from the liberal Protestant theologian Alfred Loisy, Jesus promised us the kingdom. But what we got was the church. Well, and you can already see that in scripture, like the Corinthian correspondence. Holy cow, they were a messed up bunch. And the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, I think two of them only get praised. The other five are, you know, cataloged all the things that they're doing wrong. So it's not like I don't want anyone to get out of this uh, um, kind of dull narrative of decline. And it used to be wonderful in the good old days, whether your good old days were the Reformation or the Middle Ages or the early church. It's always been a catastrophe. A congregation is wildly implausible. Nevertheless, we're still called into it. So that's why we need to address the unbelovedness and unholiness of congregations throughout the church's history. Christian love is the love of the sinner, the ungodly, the failure, the unlike, those who are different. It is not loving your own. Do not even the Gentiles love their own? What credit is that to you? But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, do good unto those who despitefully abuse you, etc. So if you want to say that the gospel love of God reaches to me, the failure, the sinner, the ungodly, and nevertheless embraces me with unconditional love and favor, then in turn... I must forgive as I am forgiven. I must love as I have been loved. So I think a lot of the problem we have uh, in congregational life is that the purity of the gospel as the justification of the ungodly and the ethical fallout of that, that means Christian love is loving those who are not like you, who are different from you, who may even irritate you or offend you in all sorts of ways. And that's, it's easy uh, to love the the others in the congregation when the congregation is nothing but a social club uh, of like-minded people. But when the congregation includes all sorts of diverse and different individuals uh, in various states of spiritual maturity, the task of loving one another uh, becomes enormous. Uh, And I think most people get in trouble about this because they don't recognize the deep nature of the challenge and the enormity of the task. I suppose magically God could have just 
you know, thundered from heaven and said, you all be fixed and we wouldn't act so badly all the time. But that's not the way of the gospel. The gospel is the slow, patient way of learning in a concrete community to love one another in all the snares and pitfalls. Yeah, I really like the way you point out there's a direct connection between the gospel itself and the resulting congregational life, because I don't think it is is taught often enough that the gospel is the justification of the ungodly, of sinners, while they were still enemies of God. And therefore, the congregation is the gathering of people who are sinners and enemies and ungodly. Um, I think we can all cut some slack to certain kinds of sins and not to others. (laughs) And we, uh, and as you said, with the with the like mindedness, we have seen congregations that have winnowed themselves down very effectively to only the like minded, and then they all turn on each other. It is never a winning strategy uh, right. because it, it it always leads in this kind of destruction. But if you if you are truly aiming to be a congregation of the ungodly justified by Christ, then you really have to reflect hard on the fact that. This is really ungodly people. These are bad people, sinful people, difficult people. And God has thrown us together out of his peculiar mercy in order to bear with one another as he bears with us. There is a material connection between the two. But like you said, it is hard. And there's probably just, I don't think there's enough in the whole culture of the of congregations, you still get this Christendom remnant of the idea that the church is the the body of their respectable, you know, or it, it used to be, or of nice right. people, or of people who've got it together, or people who are interested in spirituality. And, you know, all things being equal, you prefer to have not crazy, not difficult, right. um, <laughs> not unspiritual people in the congregation. You certainly need some percentage of people who have, you know, really given their lives to the gospel to prevent the whole from going down. But, you know, the, the reason they exist is not to congratulate themselves on their success, but to bring along those who have a lot farther to go yet. That's right. That's right. We have to understand that faith is vicarious, that if we've been given the gift of faith, we believe on behalf of others. And believing on behalf of others, we live on behalf of others. And this is not an ideology that is set in the abstract, but a task, a daily task of congregational life. And Luther also has a, somewhere he says something to the effect of, uh, with the truth you give nothing away, with love you give everything away. And I think that is also the really difficult but necessary balance to strike, is that the church has to go on being about the gospel only. And love in the congregation does not mean giving up the gospel in order to accommodate more people. And so so, you know, a, a pastor's job is to teach the congregation the content of the gospel. The congregation's job is also to test the content of the preaching and make sure that they are actually getting the gospel. And because we are, you know, very far from full sanctification, unfortunately, there will be times when there is a breaking point in the congregation. No, we're certainly commending here bearing with sinners as much as possible. But there are sins like preying upon small children that cannot simply be tolerated under the rubric right. of the sinner. I mean, you, you want their repentance and restoration, but not their continued access to anyone in the church. Uh, And likewise, um, if someone is in the congregation who is committed to a gospel that is not Christ's gospel, unfortunately, you have no choice but to confront that, and it may well blow things up. The devil is a prowling lion seeking to destroy, and congregations (laughs) have been destroyed over these things. Keep in mind the, the extreme cases where things can really break down badly, but a lot of of daily life is just showing up and putting up with each other and learning to love each other in our imperfections, foibles, even uglier sins, always praying and hoping that, that we, we come along to where Christ wants us to be. And that's where community building exercises like pastoral visitation to the workplace or to the home as that's possible, certainly in times of emergency, hospital visits, senior citizens shut in, shut away. Uh, and also small uh, community building exercises like Bible studies or prayer groups or various other kinds of circles in the congregation. All of these are ways in which uh, that process of, of, of learning to live together in Christ can be facilitated. So I think, let's, Sarah, let's, in the light of the things we've said, maybe we should look at some of the specific pitfalls uh, that affect congregational life life as we know it in 
American denominationalism. And here I would like to mention something very broad first, uh, and I think you wanted us to talk about this a little later, but I want to bring it up now. A great book in the 1920s written by the young H. Richard Niebuhr was had the title The Social Sources of Denominationalism. And he made the observation in that book, this is before really the fundamentalist modernist division of American evangelical Protestantism was fully executed. So he looked upon the vast cornucopia of Protestant denominations that had developed in the United States with the jaundiced eyes of a clear-minded sociologist and just said, what's really going on with the Lutherans and the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Methodists all being in separated denominations? And he said, it's class divisions, it's race divisions, it's divisions on uh, uh, sexuality issues, all of that, there are social sources of denominationalism. And it was a very powerful book because it said it's not because you dip or you sprinkle or you dunk. That's just a lot of denominational ideology to justify separation. It's really about your class location, your race location, and things, things of, uh, and ethnic, ethnic backgrounds and things like that. So I think when we talk about the snares and pitfalls of congregational life in the United States today, we have to, while we're focusing now narrowly on the, the congregation, we have to keep this background in mind in which uh, denominationalism serves as a pretext for avoiding genuine grassroots ecumenism uh, that would get us involved in the lives of other Christians. So how does that interact for you, Dad, with the various distinct and long-running traditions? Like Niebuhr doesn't seem to take it all seriously that, you know, you didn't mention Catholics, but for Catholics, there is a, you know, a distinct um, structure and teaching and uh, worship practice of the mass that's necessary. And same for Orthodox and, you know, Lutherans, are, the pastors are required to subscribe to the Augsburg Confession and the catechisms and reform to Heidelberg and Westminster and those kind of things and Anglicans with their Episcopal ordination. I mean, are are those um, meaningful and important traditions or streams of congregational life that are valuable and need to be preserved at the congregational level, or do you see them primarily as obstacles? I think I think you have a little bit of a paradox here in a divided Christian Christ, Christianity, in a, a doctrinally divided and separated Christianity. Every Christian tradition holds on to its particular gift, uh, perhaps with jealousy, knowing that this is what the measure of its own Christian authenticity is, and is very reluctant to jeopardize it or give it up. But of course, that perpetuates the divisions in Christianity, that very holding on to special traditions as opposed to others. I dip, no, I sprinkle, no, I dunk. So it's finally self-defeating because it's an ever-shrinking traditional legacy uh, that doesn't cut it any longer uh, with the dynamic changes that go on socially. And as a result, you have the phenomenon that Niebuhr would have appreciated of the non-denominational Christianity that's arisen in the last 50 or 60 years, allegedly, you know, saying, well, we're all behind all that old uh, stuff. We're just Bible-believing Christians or something like that. But of course, it's just a new form of denominationalism. It's micro-denominationalism. It's micro, yeah, it's something, yeah. And, and I think that, so here's the paradox, that in order to preserve the precious legacy that you've received in your tradition, you hold on to it in an identity, uh, as an identity marker, but at the same time, that identity marker separates you from other kinds of Christians. 
That's the problem. Now, how do we get beyond that? You know, how do we get beyond that? How do we both claim what's valuable in our respective Christian traditions, but in such a way that unites us or reunites us or reconciles us with Christian others? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the whole task of ecumenism that's been going for 110 years or so with varying levels of success. I have to say, um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I worked as an ecumenist. I'm, I'm committed to it. But the more time you spend in it, the less clear the goal is, because these are these are really hard things to parse. Because, you know, there there might be congregational indifference to the tradition, but there might be, you know passionate adherence. And, you know, their congregations don't exist apart from larger networks, whether they're denominations or um, orders of bishops or just uh, like a, a network, which is more common among non-denom or Pentecostal churches where it's it isn't really a top-down structure, but more like a web-based structure. But none of these are existing in isolation. And I would say every congregation, despite being, you know, the, the locus of God's work, still remains accountable and connected to, to not only the other churches um, in space near it and across the world, but backwards through time. So I don't, I don't know. I, I'm, uh, you know, and uh, correlating to our conversation in the bonus episode on being white and Christian, I'm really suspicious of solutions that strip away even more history. And one of the the reasons ecumenism has not uh, succeeded further in certain respects is because it seems, though this is definitely not the official officially the case, but I think a lot of people regard it as an attempt to forge a new megachurch of the lowest common denominator that everybody can buy yeah, into right. and absolutely no nobody loves. And you see this, I just want to say, you see this in mergers of denominations that come even from very similar backgrounds. Like if you think about the mergers of Lutheran churches that led to the ELCA that we belong to, you know, the, the result was a, a bigger church that nobody loved and netted more new denominations in the end. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, what's the and huge membership loss? So I'm probably did not denominationalism is taking us a little far afield, but I, I, I think there's still a lot of room to explore what a particular congregation, what is the nature of its relationship to its necessary denominational structure or network structure to its past, to its history, to the neighborhood, <laughs> to the, the larger unit of space it belongs to. Those remain extremely mysterious to me, I have to say. I have to say, Sarah, you know, for a long time I have thought that increasingly today denominational distinctions have become meaningless and transparent to these class alignments or uh, uh, political alignments or race alignments or something like that. And the real dividing line that runs through all the denominations is between those who want to retrieve the Christian tradition uh, for the present and future and those who want to basically get past the Christian tradition and uh, find uh, some new thing the Spirit is doing, as the slogan goes. But let's assume that the people in our audience uh, are concerned about the uh, uh, retrieval of the Christian heritage uh, for the sake of the present and the future. And, and turn attention now to some of those concrete snares and pitfalls in congregational life. Uh, I think we can begin with probably the biggest Christian idol in the nation, which is the building. What do you think? <laughs> oh, 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 Dad, what are you trying to drive an arrow into my heart? You know, this was this was the snare of my first congregation in New Jersey many years ago, where I uh, don't want to go into too much detail, but basically it was a congregation that had winnowed itself to the tiny community of the like-minded, was extremely elderly, was concerned about how to keep the doors open because that's all that mattered, and then they got a huge bequest. It had been in escrow for like five years as the the estate was disputed. They ended up getting half a million dollars, which was the death knell, because once you have that much money and you can keep your building, you never have to seek anybody else to be a part of your fellowship. And, oh, it was just, it was awful. <laughs> and I know, you know, you've heard this from lots of pastors too, people. And, and I mean, 
I'm not 100% opposed to people forming a relationship to a building because human beings live in shelters. Like we are, we are creatures that build structures around ourselves. It's not wrong to care about that. And it's not wrong to admire a beautiful church, whether it's a massive cathedral or something charming and folksy. You know, and there are some pretty unlovable looking church structures too, but it does, it so easily becomes becomes the snare and the distraction and all the money is about the roof and not about the outreach. It's it's really hard. You know, and there was a, a meme going around in the last 20 years, build it and they will come. Have you heard that one? Build it and yeah, they will come. Yeah, that was the Kevin Costner movie, Field of Dreams. I think it's been around longer than 20 years. Yeah, probably. But in the church, it took on a, a life of its own in the church. And how many congregations I know about personally in my limited purview have gone into mega debt, uh, building a superfluous structure or addition or other accoutrements on the false idea that if you build it, they will come, which is actually a substitute for building up the body of Christ uh, as the community, the caring community of Christ's people, which is then to be taught and instructed and in its life in the world to watch for the wounded man on the road and heal him and bring him in, bring uh, those him or her in to the community. That's how you build up the church. And then the physical building and its needs take care of themselves. But it's a total inversion to think that you have a beautiful building or something like that, and that's going to create a caring community of Christ people. Well, it's just much easier to band together to build a structure than it is to like get to know each other and put up with each other and maybe even love each other. I mean, it's just it's just easier for human attention and um, and group projects. Um, I don't want to sound uh, like a typical um, mainliner complaining about megachurches, but there is a phenomenon of the kind of of uh, church outfits that have enough money actually to successfully build the multi-million dollar church plex and um, um, but but what often happens in those things, they have very short life cycles because basically they drain all the small local churches who are attracted by the big building, the beautiful size, the uh, Starbucks in the lobby, um, you know, fantastic education program, youth events, all these kind of things they can do. But, um, you know, some some successfully get small group ministries, which is basically recreating real size congregations within the megachurch. But often what happens is people burn out. They can't keep up with the performance requirement to be a part of this beautiful thing, or they are forgotten or, or neglected, or there is no uh, social resource to deal with internal conflict. And they leave again, but they generally don't return to the small local church. They usually just either go on to the next megachurch or they exit altogether. It's really a kind of consumerist threshing of the Christian faithful. And, you know, there is, uh, you know, I've, I've been in churches that are not beautiful, <laughs> that have kind of that funky smell, like it should be a mark of the church. It's so universal, that, that basement <laughs> smell in churches, you know, that don't have glamorous or interesting or exciting people, but that, I mean, your chances of actually belonging to a meaningful community, unless they're determined to winnow, and, you know, that is a real possibility, um, is much greater in a smaller size. But then you have to provide for your building. <laughs> that yeah, is a problem. Do. Yeah, you do. You still have to pay the bills and all that kind of thing. But I think that's the right priority, that a, a pastoral ministry aim is to create a caring community of Christ's people that when it is alive and active will naturally build up the body of Christ by bringing in new people and successfully incorporating them and then the mission of the church and its increase will just uh, develop organically without artificial programs and mantras like build it and they will come, go into debt and uh, ha hamstring your ministry for the next 20 years paying off a mortgage. Yeah, though I, I do. I just want to say say quickly, uh, there's a lot of organic growth that can happen. But I do think, especially for I'd say mainline Protestants and Catholics, um, 
there does need to be more direct practice in evangelism. It does not come naturally. We're kind of, as a group, afraid of see, being seen as religious extremists or proselytizers or pressuring people. I think in that respect, uh, the congregational task of evangelism, it should be natural and organic, but it probably won't be without um, deliberate, deliberate effort. Deliberate, yes, I think that's yeah. absolutely right. And again, here too, is a reason why congregations and pastors need to work on their theology. What theology prepares you to do is to answer modestly, reasonably, hopefully, respectfully to all kinds of objections, hindrances, problems, obstacles people have to the Christian message and and to help them understand what the congregation is really all about. And then you don't have to be a proselytizer because the intrinsic beauty and attractiveness of a caring community of Christ people uh, will, in fact, draw people to you. And all you need to do is make that explicit, uh, that invitation explicit. Yeah. And I think people are genuinely burning out of performance culture. And it could be that a group of awkward people who are all sinners and are ungodly, nevertheless, trucking along together will be very attractive as opposed to the envy competition that is Facebook. Another snare in contemporary congregational life that we want to talk about are what pastors kind of sarcastically refer to as alligators. Alligators are swamp creatures who lie submerged just below the surface and sneak up on you. And when you're not looking, open those huge jaws and wacko, they ambush you from behind with an attack. And I'm sure most pastors who are listening to this podcast have had an experience in the congregation of a parishioner who in a sneak attack turns on you and makes your life absolutely miserable. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Tragically, yes. There's so much more attention given to evil pastors. And as I've said before, because pastors have power and authority, they should be held to a double standard. And it is particularly horrible when the pastor goes bad. But I don't think people at large, especially outside of churches, realize that there are also lay people who live to take out a pastor or live to destroy the very community they claim to be so connected to. That is that's the alligator. And you don't see it coming. It just comes and gets you. Yeah. So let's just, I mean, I don't know if we can't, more we can say about that at this point, but let's just acknowledge that as a pitfall of contemporary congregational life. My fast answer that I don't want to spend a lot of time unpacking is that here is where we need genuine congregational or church discipline. we, we need pastors who are willing to call people out when their behavior is manifestly unchristian and is causing offense in the congregation. And we need uh, boards of elders or congregational councils, whatever your governing structure is. We need them to take the spiritual responsibility for the congregation of biblical elders, of people who really supervise in in conjunction with the pastor, the Christian life of the congregation. That doesn't mean we are asking them to be pastors in place of the pastors, uh, but there has to be a united front between the the lay governing board of the church and the pastor uh, committed to proper Christian discipline in the congregation. And I think that's why you really need time together, getting to know each other, because people who belong to a community for a long time, they, they come to see each other clearly. and But then they need to have the courage to act. I have been, I'm going to be very vague here, but I've been connected to a congregation in which there was one deeply bitter person who managed to do so much damage. And no one ever had the courage, neither the, you know, the... Uh, higher up denominational level, the pastors, the council, nobody, because the the crimes were not overt, like it was an embezzlement or something like that. But it was truly a spirit of bitterness that was so destructive and no one could say anything. I mean, I, to be honest, I didn't say anything either uh, for the kind of role that I had there. That can just 
tank a ministry for years and years. So figuring out how to, you know, address that kind of, you know, poison apple without casting them into the outer darkness, but actually restoring them. I mean, a lot of a lot of damage comes out of deep hurt that hasn't been addressed. And so uh, a group of people who who know the the poison apple or the alligator well are the only ones probably in any position even to make a difference. Okay, so those are the pitfalls and snares. What do you think today? How, how do you advise people, Sarah, to choose a congregation? <laughs> yeah, I've, you know, I've been asked this a lot over the years. And, you know, it's no secret to our listeners how deeply committed I am to the Lutheran theological tradition. But I honestly wouldn't say, you know, go to your nearest Lutheran church, because I would want it actually to be Lutheran in the sense of putting the proclamation of the gospel of the justification of the ungodly by the crucified and risen Christ as the center of its life. And there's basically no way to do a franchise model of churches anymore. I think denominations still aspire to that. They want to be McDonald's headquarters and every congregation to be a McDonald's that serves the same menu. Um, And I'm kind of relieved that they don't, (laughs) but that, that means both, you know, positively they're not obeying the centralized strictures of clueless people who are bureaucrats, sorry, bureaucrats. Um, But also it means that if they want to detach entirely from their theological roots, um, their, the sources of life that have brought them into being, they can do that too. So my advice always is, you know, you can you can start with a denomination that you're comfortable with, a worship style that makes sense to you. I mean, there's there's no benefit to be had of going to a place where you just abhor the music, whether your tastes are are folksy or or very high church. You know, that's it's just going to be pain for you. But you really need to go and just listen and see what what is the central message being proclaimed. And if the central message is really not Christ and Him crucified, however wonderful the programs, however charming the or however warm the congregation, you're not getting what you need out of the congregation there. However, I realize in a lot of cases, it's really complicated because your options might be severely limited for geographic reasons or, you know, a range of denominational options. You might have to make some strategic choices. I know there was a time when we basically had to choose a fellowship over the quality of um, preaching and the style of liturgy that we liked. Um, but in our particular situation, the need for fellowship was more urgent, and we knew that we could preach the gospel to each other. Um, but that isn't going to be the situation for everybody. It, it can be really hard. But there's no, I don't know, I know I'm going on too long here, Dad, but I remember talking to a pastor once who very piously asserted that everyone should go just to whatever church was closest to them. And I was like, well, it's a nice thought, but the parish model is dead. And frankly, I'm not going to go to a church where the gospel is not preached just because it's closest and I have some, you know, eat local ideology that tells me I should go to the nearest (laughs) church. I got to get Jesus or I, I can't, the community doesn't really mean anything. And I think, you know, what we need to say here to all the lay people in this situation, how do you choose a congregation? You have from the Lord himself the power to do this because he says, my sheep hear my voice and they will not listen to the voice of a stranger. Every lay person should meditate on that verse, appropriate it and make it their own. My sheep hear my voice, and they will not listen to the voice of a stranger. That empowers them to test the spirits to see whether they are of God. That empowers them to discern. Now, you're right, to put into, put into uh, brackets some of the peripheral things, like the liturgy or the music and things like that. Uh, if you have a choice, uh, all things being equal, If you find something that works better for you than others, that's fine. But the fundamental thing is, do you hear the voice of Jesus Christ in the proclamation and praise of this particular community? If you do, it's worth uh, 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 joining that congregation, choosing that congregation. If you don't, keep looking. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, it it might come painfully. Your your congregation can change out from under you. Um, it can have the rhetoric of Christ centeredness, and over time, you discover that they're really committed to a political ideology or a certain you know social campaign or something like that. And that can be a, a really painful discovery. If you are in a position to make a difference, to bring this congregation you have some relationship with back to its center, you know, certainly do that. But there's there's always blowback from trying to recenter. So, uh, you know, you're, you're going to have to do a lot of prayerful discernment and, and, you know, ideally in conversation with other people who can help you think through what you're facing. And I think that for all the p- listeners of this podcast, uh, pastors and lay people, if you are in a congregation together, the main takeaway I would wish for you is for the leadership of the congregation with the pastor to really go back to basics, go back to the catechisms and the scriptures and try to come to a common mind about what your congregation is. Uh, And not just with simple mission statements that are simplistic, but really digging into all the facets of congregational life that we've discussed today. Uh, We need to teach Christianity as congregational life if we're to hope for healthy and flourishing congregations in the future. Yeah, and if you can't articulate your faith to each other in the super safe environment of congregation, you're certainly never going to be able to do it on the outside with people who are who are desperate to hear a good word to them. So, you know, practice in church and then take it out into the world. Amen, sister. <laughs> you always say that, and then I'm not your sister. You are spiritually my sister, sister in Christ. All right. Yeah, I suppose Jesus said, call no man your father. So that's why I call you dad. (laughs) All right. So next time on the show, we will be talking about Martin Luther's treatise, The Freedom of a Christian, which was written 500 years ago. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.